excited and uh, it's already booked five years out and it's not coming anywhere near us. The Autry in uh, Los Angeles, which is it's the Autry Museum of the West, which I have to admit, honestly, seeing that we were booking an exhibit that they will also then be booking was both startling and exciting because that, not, not that our museum's a minor museum, but that is a major, major museum. Welcome to The Human Beat. I'm Roger Rocca. Our guests today are Mac Burns, director of the Clatsop County Historical Society, and Dr. Chelsea Vaughn, the curator. We're going to be discussing today a new exhibit at the Historical Society at the Heritage Museum called Away From Home. It's a uh, traveling exhibit that was originally created at the Heard Museum uh, about 20 years ago, I believe. And uh, they got tons of feedback uh, from visitors that had their own stories to add to it. And I think about three or four or five years ago, they started to redo this permanent exhibit and started talking with the National Endowment for the Humanities and the Mid-America Arts Alliance based in Kansas City about uh, creating a traveling exhibit of it. And uh, it was created and started on the road, uh, in theory, March of last year, but a lot of museums had to cancel it. But uh, it's gonna be on the road for the next five or six years at least. And we're really excited and fortunate that uh, we booked it when we did and that uh, we got it when we're actually allowed to be open. Right, right. To add on to that, um, you know, I right, right now I'm going through and doing the conditioner condition report, so I have access to seeing where it's actually been shown to this point. And actually, the first several venues seem to have been canceled because we are only the third museum to house this exhibit. It's going to open April 6th, and it'll run through uh, May 25th, and then we crate it up, and it goes to the next venue. And reading the material about this, this is a, 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 an exhibit where human beings are reaching out to human beings. I mean, that's the way it is to me. And you're hearing stories about things that are going to move you and touch you and make you angry and make you wonder what in the world we were thinking. So let's start talking a little bit about the subject matter. It's, it's a part of American history that most of us have heard of, but don't know anything about. Yeah, I, I think it's, I mean, it's certainly timely, but uh, it is a very deliberate, they weren't dancing around it, they weren't um, trying to put it in pretty words. This was a, a very organized attempt by the federal government to uh, eliminate Native American culture, uh, simple as can be. It was, they were set to, uh, and I'm using air quotation marks here, they were trying to Christianize uh, and eliminate that, that Native American culture. And it was um, throughout, I mean, I can't think of a Native American tribe that wasn't touched by this. Uh, they began this in 1879 and there are still um, federal Indian schools today, but uh, the mission has changed obviously over time, but uh, it's kind of horrible and it's gut-wrenching when you read how you know, these kids were taken from reservations and their, their families, their homes uh, far away, and um, they were immediately put into different clothes. They were, uh, their hair was cut, and they were given new names, uh, sometimes assigned a religion, and uh, usually told not to speak their, their language. And um, it was, it was just a very, uh, like I said, organized attempt to, to eradicate the culture. Um, one thing I want to do is a quick point of clarification. Uh, when Max said that they're still 
approximately five federally run boarding schools in operation today, it's a very different situation than it was a century ago. This is no longer a forced situation. The students who go to these schools elect to go to these schools for a variety of you know, reasons, personal or based upon the decisions they make with their families. So on that level, it's, you know, that's an important to note that that's no longer, this is not continuing to happen as it was a century ago. Uh, but also um, one thing I'd like to add about this exhibit is it does a really good job showing the very complexity of this history because, you know, as Max says, it was very much this um, organized attempt to at cultural annihilation. Uh, but it's also a thing that touched just thousands of lives and individuals and how individuals negotiated this system and, you know, what the benefits and, you know, terribleness was varied by tribe, it varied by school, it varied by time period. So there's a lot of nuance to it. And I think the exhibit does a really good job capturing the nuance. Well, this happened at a period of time in the 1870s, the uh, Indian wars, as we call them, uh, were largely over. The Indian resistance had, had been crushed. Um, the Indian people were left with um, poverty and disease. Um, their lands uh, were, were, were taken and were being taken away. Uh, and really the Indian Wars were all about land. It was the, the white settlers wanted the land and the Indians were on it. And that's sort of the basis of, of all of that. So they lost their lands. Uh, they lost the, the, the traditions that went with them uh, and the, the, the resources that went with them. And so, you know, therein comes the poverty. So against this context then, probably on the part of some at least well-meaning, although not well-informed, to take Indian children and send them to schools away from the reservation so they could become civilized, as, as you say. And we look back at that, at least I, I hope we do, and think, wow, that was just tone deaf entirely about uh, uh, people. So, so how did they do that? What, uh, how, how did they get those children to those schools? There were, I, I, oh, going I, back. Nope, I was, I was just gonna, I was gonna give a, a, a attempt to answer that, but I was gonna lead off by saying, in case you hadn't figured out, Chelsea is the smarter one here. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I say that many times and publicly, and I will stand by it. Uh, she is far more articulate than I am, but uh, they, they were taken. And sometimes very tough decisions on family parts uh, that I can't feed my children, but at least hopefully maybe the government, if I let them take my children to this school, will feed them. Well, and to build on that point, um, absolutely there was an issue of the resources of children being fed, but as a means of coercion, um, reservations would deliberately withhold food and withhold resources for the purpose of getting the children. That was one of the techniques that was utilized. Um, there are even, I don't know if more draconian is the proper phrasing, but there was, you know, there were times kids were just taken, just flat out taken. Like to describe this as an organized attempt to kidnap an entire generation of children is not incorrect. So it, there's various methods. There was coercion, there was outright taking, um, there were, you know, 
the times there were families that made the decision looking for opportunities for their children and seeing this was maybe something better. Um, there were times, you know, talking about kids just being taken, they would be not just taken, but taken a far distance, like, and then they oftentimes wouldn't see their family again for five years. You know, and speaking about kids being taken, um, one of the more painful pieces we have in this exhibit, I, um, I say we, it's not really our exhibit, we're hosting it, but um, is, is a pair of uh, shackles meant for a child. And it's, it's just a very, the fact that something like that even exists is horrifying. And, and that there it is and commonplace enough that it survives and we, it can be part of a touring exhibit. I read that even uh, beyond the withholding resources to kind of force families to send some of their children, there even were some families that were imprisoned for not sending their children to these schools. So the, the effort was pretty extreme. And that tore apart families, it tore apart community networks. And then, you know, what happened to the kids when they got there? I understand for one thing, they were not even allowed to speak their own language. They had to hide it if they were going to do that. And that's an important part, right? So this idea, and one thing that's included in our materials associated with this, um, you know, part of the reason that these Indian schools were created, as you know, as you pointed out, Roger, this was the end of the Indian Wars, was there was just this gross mathematics where it was estimated that to kill a Native American via warfare cost a million dollars, where you could educate a child for eight years for twelve hundred. So there's just this gross calculation there of trying to then, you know, the best way to actually take these lands would be to, you know, create a, you know, to assimilate the children into a white society. Um, and so one way to do that would be to destroy the language and destroying the language doesn't just assimilate the kids, but it also creates a generational break between parents, between grandparents and the children themselves so that they no longer have that clear tie to the community. So this is one of the things that we, reading through the materials uh, was just really you know, hard for the kids because they weren't just punished, they were punished severely for using their language. Um, and, but you, you're, there you are, you can't talk your own language, you don't know the language that's being spoken to you, it's confusing, you, these kids are just, some of them are kindergartners, they're really young in, in some instances. Um, but also though, the use of language was a form of resistance. And that's an important thing to keep in mind that you know, people didn't just succumb to these situations, that people continued, these, these children uh, continued to fight and to resist. And you know, sometimes they'd have to use their language in secret, right? They'd find other people from their tribe, other people who spoke the same language as them, and they would use this as a way of resisting what was being done to them. So, so language is, yeah, language is very important um, that a, it was tried to be taken away, but then B, people tried also to, to maintain it. I understand students too were sort of callously, I think, used as a, a form of inexpensive labor once they were in the schools. They were in the control of the people who were running the schools. That is true on, on actually multiple levels. So not only were they um, used to maintain the schools themselves, um, they, the idea was that initially they were brought to the schools and they were certainly used um, sort of, you know, to maintain the schools, but they were, um, how do I say, they were, the, the lessons were a bit more intellectual and academic initially, but then around 1900, uh, the school shifted focus purely to vocational on the idea that 
Uh, none of these children were going to get intellectual jobs quite, you know, ethnocentrically. Um, and so the children increasingly, they would be used, you know, for labor. Their training was vocational. They were used as labor around um, the schools, but also there was this, what's called the outing program where basically anybody from the community, like any white person from the community could show up at the school and say, I need a grill today to go clean whatever. And basically the children would be rented out. Um, there was no set price for this. The children themselves would have to negotiate how much they were gonna get paid for this labor. Um, it was, yeah, yeah. So it's a system in which, you know, children, the, the labor of these children is being used both by the school and by the local community in these incredibly exploitive and again, ethnocentric ways of thinking that this is what the work that these kids can do. And this is all these kids are. This is something we would relate to today as well. At that time, um, a lot of children were brought together in a confined indoor space at a time of tuberculosis. And the result was very similar to, you know, the results we see from that today with uh, COVID. Exactly like you'd expect. Um, health was a huge issue. The sanitary conditions were appalling uh, oftentimes. And, uh, you know, we've got uh, a woman who's coming up from Los Angeles who's uh, a Sioux Native American, and she's got some relatives that, of course, went to some of these schools, and she tried to track down a couple of distant cousins and uh, all she was ever told was, well, they're buried somewhere out there in the field. They died when they were six or seven and they didn't even mark the graves. I understand, uh, you know, understandably, some of the some of the kids tried to run away, tried to get away because they were, and there actually were bounty hunters. They're, you they're, know, they're, let me tell the local story. Okay, then. Yeah. Absolutely, a bigger story. Somebody, uh, I won't mention him name because I haven't gotten permission, but somebody we all know locally, I was mentioning this exhibit to, and I had no idea he was part Native American. And he said, oh yeah, my my grandfather went to uh, Shamawa down in uh, Southern Oregon. And I said, oh my gosh, well, what was what was his experience? You know, did he did he think it was beneficial or was it harmful? And this person just laughs and I don't know, they stopped bringing him back after about the eighth time that he ran away. And uh, he came up to the northern part of the state. And as a kid, 14-year-old kid, he started working in logging camps. So yeah, they did run away. That's actually, there's an entire panel in the exhibit dealing with the instance of running away because it was so very common. Um, and it lists some of the statistics of how many kids were running away. Sometimes it would be up to 200 kids from one school in a four-month period. Um, well, my the favorite, uh, favorite is the wrong word because this is all terrible, but um, the one of the stories that is included is of uh, kindergartners busting each other out. The, a, bunch, a group of kindergartners were locked in. Well, the fact that they have a school jail is itself a problem and that you have kindergartners in a school jail is yet another problem. Uh, but uh, the kindergartners who were on the outside of it took a log, bashed the lock, these little you know, five-year-old kids, and bash the door open and they all escaped. So, and you know, this is, I guess I'd say one of the things where, you know, the weird, the problem of time and space where, you know, the idea of kindergartners bashing their way out of this prison is kind of, it, 
there's something that feels almost amusing about it, but it's ultimately, it's not amusing. So it's a terrible story. The same with the story Mac told, like it becomes with generations, it can become an, kind of an amusing story about your grandfather, but the reality is that he's running away because this is a traumatic experience. I think less amusing than it is that you smile because you admire the pluck and the strength of those kids. And that, it, so it does make you smile, but not because it's amusing. It makes you smile because it makes you feel good about, about the humanness of those, of those children. And the, the, strength, the strength of their culture, that, that this was not a success in the sense that Native American culture was destroyed. I think that the tribes still feel the impact very dramatically, and it has spanned generations, and, and they're still feeling the impacts of the, the negative aspects of these schools. But the fact that, that these tribes survived and the culture does still survive um, in many places is a tribute to that that kindergarten sense of defiance of we're not going to let our friends be locked in that jail. Yeah. You know, so much of the story is told through individual stories of people who live through it and through, through things that they have said. And there are a couple, I mean, there's so many, you, you could, you could pick them all out and read them, but there are a couple that one of them bears a little bit on, on what we're talking about because, you know, different kids were affected in different ways. And I read this quote from a woman um, who was from the Hopi Reservation. And this is back in 1918. And she said, I didn't feel at ease in the home of my parents now. This is after school. My father and my mother, my sister and my older brother told me to take off those clothes and wear Hopi attire. I didn't wear them. My mother said she was glad I was home. If I would stay there, she would not urge me to change my ways. I could wear any kind of clothes that I wanted to wear if I would just stay at home with her. And then there was another one, a woman, uh, this, this is much more recent. It's a woman, uh, a Navajo woman. And this is a quote from 1999. So as you mentioned, the schools are still going on. They've changed a great deal and I wanna get into that, but she said, I live in a white society and it wasn't working out for me right. It wasn't about my personality or who I was inside. It was the outside of me they judged. I felt comfortable with all these other Indians here. So I stayed here. I came back every year. And boy, that sure resonates with today as well, where how you look on the outside kind of defines you for so many people. And we're seeing that played out in our society right now and in our courtrooms and, and in how we treat each other. So I guess getting back to something resembling a question, <laughs> how, how did things change? What, 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 uh, what happened over the years that, that made things less, less awful, I guess? Um, well, several, it wasn't like one magic turning point. This is just, you know, the schools evolved over time. Uh, 1928, there's a report that is just scathing about these sanitary conditions of these schools that uh, forces, you know, the schools to actually have to address that issue. Um, you know, 1930s, you have the Indian New Deal, and as part of that, these schools, they come to serve, um, you know, Native American needs better. Uh, there's a more of an emphasis upon actually maintaining traditional ways as opposed to being told that those could no longer ex be part of your life. Uh, so there's a new emphasis upon 
you know, art, uh, Native American art, Native American dance, Native American, you know, storytelling, things of that nature that um, you see not only in the schools, but also then the people who have come through the schools, they are then manufacturing or reproducing this sort of artwork for a more mainstream audience. And so you see a larger acceptance and a larger understanding of Native American culture. Um, you also though start to see, you know, the students themselves, like you, one interesting juxtaposition in this exhibit is that you have the very rigid official um, portraits of the students. And then uh, once the students start, you know, getting access to cameras themselves, they're photographing each other. And so you have these, actual images of the students capturing their own lives that tell a different story, right? It's again, you know, the institutional idea of look at we've succeeded in creating these very civilized individuals when, and you see those in the official portraits, but then with the pictures taken by the students themselves, you see them just as the individuals, right? Them enjoying each other's company, them, you know, some being often being ca more casual, you know, doing, doing different things. So increasingly these schools are becoming a site of you know, these individ you know, individuals are able to find ways of expressing themselves, of making them work for themselves. Uh, these schools also interestingly really are an important component in creating what's called pan-Indianism. That is that it brings multiple tribes together that normally would never have had um, interaction of any real sort. And so you get a sense of, um, so people sort of have a larger sense of, them sense of themselves within a, as part of a larger community than what they grew up with. Um, you part of the exhibit we feature the um, Indians of all nations occupation of Alcatraz Island, which is of course one of the ultimate expressions of pan Indian, Indian activism and a very important moment within uh, the development of Native American rights. Um, you know, and eventually what you see is these schools really transitioning to where you know again it's kids don't have to go to these schools; they elect to go to these schools. And get for the reasons for going to these schools, they're make, are, you know, they're personal, they're individual reasons. But you know, students I've spoken to in the past, you know, they like to be part, feel like they're part of this community. They like that it is, you know, that with other people they can relate to. Sometimes they want to get with them home, or it gives them new experiences, it gives them new options. They want to live somewhere else, so it provides new opportunities. So it's it's a long, you know, it's just a lot of events of the transition over over a century, right? to be where they are today. It seems to me the thing that made the Indian wars possible and made the schools possible, made taking children away and putting them in distant schools possible, was that the attitude of uh, at least part of the white culture at that time was that the Indians were the other, and not only the other, but a lesser other. They really weren't quite as human, perhaps, and the disturbing thing is that it seems that in some ways we're still doing that. It's very easy for a, a powerful majority to look at others who are different um, and, and rather than embrace that we're all humans and at the end of the day we we all want the same things. We want to be happy. We want our families and our children to be happy. It's very easy to embrace something like manifest destiny. And this continent is, is ours for the taking. And if you, if you embrace that idea, 
then these Native Americans are, are just in the way. And that's what gives rise to the Indian Wars and the, the ability to treat them as subhuman or lesser or we need to educate and rise them up. Um, you know, when, when the land is out there and, and people don't think it's being used the way that we would use it, um, it's really easy. And this happens all over the world over and over and over again um, to this day, unfortunately. Well, let me ask you, uh, there's probably things I haven't asked you. So are there things that you would like to talk about about the exhibit that uh, we haven't covered? Well, one warning that we've been asked to make sure that people are very aware of, it's this exhibit is not meant for elementary school kids. Um, they recommend it for middle school and up. And even then, uh, it, it's a tough subject. It's a very hard subject. And parents, if you're thinking about bringing your children, uh, we really encourage you to have a very thoughtful conversation ahead of time and maybe even come yourself first to really see the exhibit. Yes, definitely. I've been, I've been thinking about this a lot. I, you know, I have a 10 year old kid and I was thinking like, you know, certainly as a history I, I want to expose her to, but, but how? And, and why, why is it recommended for 13 and over? And I think the thing is, is that looking at the, the story, it's, it's a traumatic story and it, it's, it's a heartbreaking story. Um, but, you know, as an adult, I am able to process this in a different way than like my 10 year old daughter. Um, and, you know, I think she would process it in a way where, you know, she can very much internalize this idea of children her own age being forcefully removed from their home and removed from their families. And so I think I think for the children, possibly it's an internalization is the fear of, you know, the story being told. But on that end, it still is a very important story. So one thing we have done, uh, the um, uh, the Heard Museum very we have a, we have an education information packet and, and we have these uh, objects that actually connect to the story and we have set up a activity station in a different area of our museum and that you know parents can then you know I think more safely engage with the, especially upper elementary school and lower middle school age kids with this history in a way that is you know it still reveals the history to them but is possibly less traumatizing or you know it, it, it's a it, it's a more age-appropriate way for um upper elementary and lower middle school age kids to be exposed to this history so we do have that opportunity available for families as well we've been talking with mac burns director of the clatsop county historical society and dr chelsea vaughn the curator about a new exhibit called away from home it's being shown at the heritage museum one of the Clatsop County Historical Society museums in Astoria. I'm Roger Rocca. Thanks for listening. We're down to the final week of the spring membership drive for KMUN. It ends this Saturday. The drive is going very well, but what would make it even more satisfying is if everyone who is listening to this program right now was or became a member. News and public affairs are key services KMUN works to provide for its community. From the big blow to public health to lost pets, KMUN is on the air getting the facts to explain, inform, and help keep us safe and make things right. Your membership, your participation in the Spring Membership Drive, goes a long way toward providing the resources that make it all possible. 
I ask you to think about what level of support is comfortable for you and to call right now with your pledge at 503-325-0010 or go online to kmun.org and find the red Donate button at the top of the page. 